The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I want to start out this morning by telling you about a fantastic conference on August 6th to the 8th in beautiful Santa Barbara, California, University of Santa Barbara. But you have to register before June 1st to get the early bird discount. It's, it is the Forensic Summit. There will be lectures on acoustical fingerprinting, close-range photogrammetry, forensic audio enhancement, repair and authenticity, and many other interesting forensic topics. So some of the best experts in forensics will be speaking Go to Google, put in Executive Summit 2015, Santa Barbara. And then there's another conference just around the corner in the annual conference of the California Association of Licensed Investigators. It's June 6th to the 8th in Reno, Nevada at the Peppermill Casino. On that one, you can Google California Association of Licensed Investigators or send me an email uh, at Francie, F-R-A-N-C-I-E dot K-O-E-H-L-E-R at gmail.com. Now for our topic, evaluating and investigating drug-induced sexual assault. Forensic expert Dr. Craig Pratarelli is my guest. Hi, doctor. Good morning. And you told me I could call you Dr. P. Right. That's okay. <laughs> somewhere you, or another, that name just kind of stuck. It stuck, yeah. I go. You have such an interesting background. Tell us how you got to the point where you're a forensic expert, because I know you you spent many years as, working as a private investigator. So right. That's fascinating. I had uh, gone to college, and uh, for some reason or another, my father decided that I needed to go work for uh, his family business. So I took off some time and went out to Arizona. And while I was out there, I was taking criminal justice classes just to keep my mind in. And I started getting uh, assignments from the public defender's office and uh, from the constable's office and stuff like that. So when I moved back home to Wisconsin I, uh, to uh, you know, pay the bills, I was doing more uh, defense work and uh, that kind of thing. So I just applied pretty much the science background that I had to the cases that I was doing. Mm-hmm. More of a necessity is the mother of invention type of thing. Interesting. So when so your father's business in Arizona was what? Uh, he was a vice president with the Walgreen Corporation. Interesting. And so how did you how did you start getting assignments from the uh, working with the public defender's office there? Uh, I knew 
one of the guys that I worked with at Walgreens was in a band with uh, the the guy who handled the investigations for the public defender's office. Oh, that, that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. And so then you started working with that private investigator, right? How fascinating! So what a what an interesting experience, and then going into psychology too, right? So yeah. my uh, undergraduate major is psychology, but I have a minor in chemistry, biology, sociology, criminal justice, and theology. And you did something else in your spare time? My goodness. Worked cases, really. <laughs> Worked cases. Okay, so you went back to Wisconsin, and mm-hmm. you were working, um, you were supporting yourself by running a private investigation agency there. Right. And then you, you graduated, then you went to medical school. Well, first I, <laughs> I went to um, graduate school in clinical psychology for a while, and then I transferred over to UW-Milwaukee, and uh, I did some neuropsychology there. And then I went to medical school. And then you graduated from there in 2009. Right, yeah. That is, that's just an amazing body of work that you've done. Uh, I mean, you don't look that old, Dr. P. Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay. So now, though, you're, you teach medical topics in El Paso and you're a full-time professor. Right. Yes. And that, what university is that? Uh, Southwest University. In El Paso. Right. And you also run a forensic consulting practice. Right. So do you also testify as an expert? Um, I haven't recently, but I have on occasion. Okay. Well, it's an, a, just amazing, uh, really an amazing birth of experience. And, but today's topic, we're going to be talking about uh, the kinds of sexual assaults that start out with drugs or alcohol. And you wrote uh, an article that I read that I found fascinating. You called drug it's, you call it drug facilitated sexual assaults. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit because it, it is a an really interesting topic. What um, I really didn't care about the topic. Aside from I was on the internet and I saw the allegations against Cosby, and I thought Bill Cosby? No, now this guy couldn't couldn't have done this. Uh, you know, there's, there's no way. It's just not the personality that he projects on the television, which mm-hmm. is completely different than. And I watched one of the, uh, an interview with one of the uh, people who are making the complaint against him, and I'm watching her talking, whoa, wait, that, that, no drug works like that. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. This is making no sense. Mm-hmm. So I went to um, you know, the pharmacology books that I have around the house, and I looked at it and I said, there's just no way this happened. So I went and I pulled the, the literature, literature research on the drug-facilitated sexual assaults. And what was very interesting is there's not a whole lot of information on it. Um, it hasn't been well-researched. And the research that has been done is 10, 15 years old. Hmm. So hopefully with um, – the allegations against uh, Cosby, we'll see some a new interest in um, these cases because it looks like a good portion of these cases go unreported. And the problem with that is uh, a lot of people don't realize what had happened to them. The reason you're going to use um, some of the drugs, and I, I really don't feel comfortable talking, uh, giving the names of the drugs. Right. Yes, I so, agree. Uh, 
But two reasons. One, you incapacitate the victim, right? So there's no ability to respond. And more importantly, you impair their memory. So there's no new memories laying down. In some of the endoscopy procedures, they use one of the drugs that is used in this. And the patient is, well, not really conscious, but they're aware of what's going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And after the procedure, you say, hey, how was the procedure? And they say, oh, fine, I guess, you know, because there's no memories being laid down. So that's why you're going to use this. Which Interesting. So, so there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, there's, there's certainly the situation where um, a guy and a gal are together and they're using drugs and the female gets somewhat incapacitated and gets taken advantage of. Right. The most common variant of this is uh, you see some college people going out for beers and uh, next thing you know, inhibitions are broken down like that. And then there's the and then there's the other <clears throat> situation where where the usually the male perpetrator uh, gives the female drugs that incapacitates her intentionally. Right. Absolutely. Which is what we're talking about with the accusations against Bill Cosby. Right. But we hear about that a lot. The roofies and the you know this and that and and the girl doesn't remember anything except maybe the last time she took a sip out of her drink yeah until the memory starts getting impaired yep hmm. and part of the problem is some of the people maintain a relationship after this so there's no reason to question it and others of them you know just find that nothing unusual went on it, it was what you know somewhere as an option for the evening uh, though not in that fashion well and and don't some of them also remember it? Remember the sexual activity like a dream? Possibly, possibly. Then there's the other uh, situation that occurs with this, which is the drug-induced hallucinations, where they're going to have uh, what they call sexualized hallucinations, which is not uncommon if you work anywhere uh, around anesthesiology. You're going to find people claiming, I was sexually assaulted during this process. So where it makes this situation complicated is you could have an individual uh, administer some drugs with the intent of performing a sexual assault, complete a sexual assault. While that drug causes a sexualized hallucination, they're upset by it. They go to the police. They report something completely different which happened from their memory, even though they were sexually assaulted in a different fashion. So how does that work? What happens? The exact mechanism? Yeah. Well, it, um, the majority of the drugs are of a class called uh, benzodiazepines. And we have several different drugs there. So it alters the firing of the neurons. Okay. So it brings the brain's chemistry out of alignment. So in a hallucination, you have a seeing, feeling, you know, a perception. It's a disorder in perception that's not occurring. This is one of the problems with drugs. You should have a connection to the outside. So when you get an outside stimulus, it's reported in the brain. Mm-hmm. 
when you alter that, that equilibrium, now you have neurons firing that shouldn't be firing, making the brain seem as if something's happening. When so in you fact, ha- it's not. So you have a complete false, completely false situation that, um, so, you, so you have a situation where, where you and I were talking about offline, where maybe a woman is, uh, has accused several people of a sexual assault. Right. I've um, actually run into that type of case. And I wish I had known it. Um, it was a, a friend of mine from the, the actually investigative security business had some allegations made and we looked at you know because he knew investigators all over and we did this just extensive background check hmm. uh, to her and we found that she has a series of reporting false sexual assaults so what i found out well after the case and i wish i knew it knew it during the case is the drug that she was taking uh, for underlying psychiatric disorder mm-hmm. does produce the sexualized hallucination is the top drug for producing sexualized Interesting. hallucination. And, and what does it treat typically? Uh, severe anxiety, some, okay. some psychotic symptoms. Uh, they can and, give it to you in a manic phase during a bipolar inc- incident. So it's a, somewhat of an antidepressant? No, it's more of an anti-anxiety drug. Um, and, okay. Interesting. So do they do... Um, doctors that prescribe this drug, is this a known side effect? Not really. Not really. I, yeah, in medical school, you don't really get a whole lot of um, history on the drugs. And, and that's pharmacology was my main topic that I taught in uh, medical school. You don't have a whole lot, whole lot of time. So you treat name of the drug, action of the drug, what it's used for, side effects, move on. Mm-hmm. So if it's not a well-known side effect, it's not going to be discussed or memorized remembered. So this is kind of plowing new ground, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, there's a study that was done, I forget, the big long name starts with a B, I forget the guy's name. And they used his study in a dentist, I think it was in Ohio, where he had been charged with 18 counts of sexual assault. So the anesthesiologist came in and testified saying, hey, this drug drug causes these hallucinations, and they were able to get a, a good uh, result for him on that case. Uh, there's also currently the same drug being used in uh, some city in Canada where they've charged the doctor and the hospital with complicity. Their laws are a little different than ours, so I don't really understand what goes on up there. Uh-huh. But both the hospital and the doctor are charged, and they expect to use this uh, defense. On Interesting. That. I think that's the guy you mentioned in your article. Right. Bala, I can't pronounce the name, but anyway, uh, it's a very long name starting with B. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, so I wonder why they, why they believe the hospital is uh, complicit. Maybe just because the doctor's on staff there? Uh, I wouldn't have a clue as to what they came up with. Interesting. I mean, I could only speculate and I wouldn't want to. That. So, Doctor P, what what kind of a person take, taking the situation where um, a guy is intentionally inducing drugs to a female for the purpose of having sex? What kind of a person, kind of a profile is that? 
here again, they really don't know what his profile is. Seems to be a very normal individual. Somebody who's not marginalized from the community. Uh, could be anybody in, from any age. The only thing that is well known about it is that there is a high incidence of repeat. So there, there's a very, um, recidivism is a problem with this. Other than that, they really don't stand out from the rest of society. Unless they're severely damaged like some of these uh, serial killers. <laughs> like, right, uh, yeah. Like Those John Wayne Gacy, for example, yeah. There have been, uh, you know, drugs are a very um, tricky thing. You really got to watch your patient, their weight, the dose you're giving, what other drugs they're taking. And there was one incident uh, where they drugged the girlfriend's sister so that the boyfriend could do whatever. And they ended up killing her with the drugs. With the drugs. Yeah. Because the, the dosage was more than her, her body could handle. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a sad case. Really and sad case. These drugs tend to suppress the respiratory system. So when you, you know, throw out the, the air, forget it, you're done. Hmm. We're going to take a break, Dr. P. Uh, this is fascinating. More to come from Dr. Craig Pratarelli. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. If you just joined the show, Francie Consultant Dr. Craig 
Iterelli is discussing sexual assault cases, particularly those that are drug-induced. Um, doctor, um, you have a list of things that uh, these perpetrators generally share. What would those be? Um, one of them is they have access to this drugs, the type of drugs that they're going to use. Okay. Can, and drug access is not difficult. Uh, the only problem would be getting what you want when you want it. Okay. A lot of these things are commonly prescribed. And then you have to have, again, the understanding of how the drug works. So you can't like just give the drug and then out they go. Right? You have to understand the time period in between there and then what's going to happen. Okay. So it's not like you can drop an aspirin into uh, somebody's coffee and it's going to work. Then usually they have to have an access to a setting where you can carry out the uh, assault undisturbed, right? So you won't be interrupted in a house, office, wherever. Right. I guess then, this is why doctors often get accused or dentists often get accused of things like this. Right. And the, this is why you should always have the, um, uh, the assistant with you, a medical assistant or dental assistant or whatever. Right. right? Preferably a woman. Because when you, for two reasons. One, you can have somebody who was there, see what happened. And two, when you have a woman with you in, in the um, clinical setting, your patient, who's female, will relax. So you don't have to fight the muscles on any procedure you're doing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Never thought of that. Okay. So they're able to establish some sort of rapport and trust with their intended victim. Okay. And they have a plan to avoid arrest, prosecution, which may involve redressing the victim, telling the victim the rape was consensual or that no sexual contact took place, or exiting the premises before the victim regains consciousness. Hmm. Which it would be very dangerous because you could, there's a chance of um, aspiration of vomitus during this. So you don't want to leave the person there. Is that no matter what drug it is, or would, could that be that pro possibility? Um, it's going to be generally related to the individual, how well you tolerate the drug. Okay. And what of a shock. I mean, somebody who's you know, using alcohol every weekend or something else every weekend, their system is going to probably handle it a little bit better. Somebody who's uh, you know, a teetotaler, if you will, um, their system is going to react a little bit differently to okay. that. So it could stimulate the uh, emesis or vomiting. And they tend not to have a history of physical violence. So they're not interested in humiliating the victim or some of the things that you see in, in the power or the anger, sexual assaults. It's a pure drive to get uh, the sexual gratification. And they're often invested in their careers and their communities and they're not marginalized. So these are people that you wouldn't be able to tell. Eventually, you know, people are going to start talking, oh, you know, hey, this odd thing happened or yeah. I don't remember what happened. So, but it's odd though. So why, I mean, I can understand somebody like uh, a, a well-known celebrity, like we were talking about the accusations against Bill Cosby. But otherwise, why would, uh, why would a guy care? Uh, is it, is it, I mean, I just don't get it. Why, why would they go out of their way to keep their victim 
I put that in quotes, victim, from knowing that they wanted to have sex? Well, it's not the knowing that they wanted to have sex. It's the actual sex that they had. And if you incapacitated them and had a memory in, in, in check, in place, they could then go to the, the police and say, hey, look, you know, I uh, got sexually assaulted by this individual. Whereas if you have an ability to impair the memory, they'd not be able to tell you exactly what happened. You know, I went over there and next thing I know, I'm putting on my clothes going home, something like that. You know, I, have, I have no memory in between. Um, why an individual would do this, couple different reasons. One is the just um, straight desire, doesn't have the smooth to do it other ways, and so you know, drugs them and has that result. Then there's uh, paraphilias, which are characterized as a psychiatric disorder, a psychological disorder. Okay. There's 512 different paraphilias, something like that. But this is where the individual who is involved in the paraphilia has as his uh, desired result uh, to have the sexual relationship with somebody who is unconscious mm -hmm. for whatever it is. And the normal um, variant of this is you'll see somebody who always dates a woman who is you know, within a certain height range, certain hair color, glasses, no glasses, certain style mm -hmm. of dress. Mm -hmm. That's their preference. Well, this is the same thing but on the pathological end of it. So their deal is to uh, engage in sex with somebody who's unconscious. Well, and I, I suppose there's an adrenaline rush with getting away with something as well. You know, do and having having a victim that you could do anything you wanted to with them without their knowledge. Um, that would look more like your Gacy types and your Dahmer types that would do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, this doesn't seem to um, doesn't really seem to play into it. It just seems okay. to be a matter of um, either one having the sex you know, for the, the gratification alone on that or fulfilling a paraphilia. And so paraphilia, um, do, do we even know where paraphilia starts? Is that something that is an anomaly from childhood? Is it something that's genetic? Do we even know? No. Uh, some are cultured by the individual and others just seem to take in. Hmm. So when you say 500 and some uh, different paraphilias, that is just astonishing actually. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, the one somebody on the radio used to talk about, I guess somebody in Florida had some, and these used to be called sexual perversions, uh, something to do with feet and was <laughs> getting busted down there for repeated incidents of some, something to do with the feet. Some kind of foot fetish. I mean, yeah. I, there's even a website I saw one time that is all about foot fetishes. <laughs> crazy. Um, anyway, uh, so Dr. P, how do you even go about investigating a case like this? Say somebody, say a doctor is charged criminally with um, 
sexually assaulting one of his patients. How do you even start? First thing you sit down, I mean, it would be this, if I were to do it as a physician and investigator, Yeah. Um, I'd, you know, of course, um, the component theory, you know, sit down and talk with your client, you know, hey, what's going on here? And I found, um, you know, I'd, I'd worked, I don't know how many sexual assaults when I was doing, the guys who did it usually said, she's lying, she's lying, she's lying. The guys who didn't just like, I don't know, I, I, I have no idea what's going on there. This makes no sense to me. Why are they doing this to me? Hmm. So I'd talk with him and see what he had to say. And if he's perplexed, um, then I know I got something there. That would be a clue. Yeah. From there, I'd ask him what drugs he's using, who was around, talk to him about his scheduling, his office layout. You know, was the assistant able to come in and out at will? And then put the case together from there. You know, of course, interview the victims, see what they have to say. You right. want to see if one of them is the, you know, somebody with a history of false accusations, which the, one of the drugs is capable of producing. Mm-hmm. Not, and I, I want to be very clear on this, not everybody who takes that drug is going to report false incidents of sexual assault. Hmm. Well, that's interesting in itself. Is there any commonality for a person that reports it and somebody that doesn't? I'm, what would be the difference? I don't know. Um, that was one of the things that I was going to research. Um, this I'm <clears throat> actually I've got a pile full of uh, articles on that, so I'm going to really look into that. I wanted to. That you'll have to wait for a couple of months before I'm able to speak on that. <laughs> okay, I you know I'd really be interested in knowing that because uh, it, w- it would be fascinating to f- to know if there was any consistency. Uh, with the people that report it versus the people that it didn't affect that way. Yeah, and the case that I'm familiar with where this happened, I'm looking for why is this woman constantly reporting sexual assaults that couldn't have happened? Mm-hmm. And I knew she had a mental history, and I knew there was some political motivation in there, but it just didn't make any sense. I mean, the people who she was accusing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, after a while, I found, oh, wow, this drug does cause people to have the sexualized hallucinations. And from that point, um, I was able to put it together. Like, okay, now it makes sense. Well, and there's this case that you've talked about in your article, the Pennsylvania oral surgeon. Right. He was acquitted of 17 counts. Right. And it was that kind of a situation, right? Yes, very much so. Uh, they used very heavily um, anesthesiologists for expert witnesses to, to show that these hallucinations take place. I mean, that also, the thing is, you're not always going to have a sexualized hallucination when you do have a hallucination. It's just one of the possibilities. Anybody, talk to any nurse who's worked in recovery, and they'll tell you about people having sexualized hallucinations. Really? Yeah. Huh. I mean, it's, it's not difficult. But on the same hand... You're going to see people come, come out of it and say, I, I don't know what's going on. I was talking to grandma. You're talking to grandma. Grandma's been dead for 20 years. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, it's, it's just kind of opens up a whole avenue of thought process. Maybe you might not be able to do anything, 
in the investigation, but it certainly opens up a thought process that right. opens up new questions. Yeah. And certainly, you know, when you have a victim reporting something, look at the drug history. Um, <laughs> the way we did it on one case is we hired an investigator, or actually the defense team hired an investigator. They went and stole the garbage and found all the discarded uh, vials from whatever pharmacy she was t getting them filled at. And then uh -huh. we, we knew what was going on then. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, so one of the things, one of the problems that you mentioned to me uh, is that often the talk screens aren't screening for the drug that has been given to this person. Right. In a lot of cases, they don't even look for, for this. And another problem is the number of drugs are very wide that you could use. I mean, there's, I can think of 15, 20 right off hand that you could use in, in this. So expense is part of the, the, the issue here. You can't test for every single drug that could possibly do this. Right, right. So if you had uh, if you had a situation like that, say you were working on the defense side of one of these types of sexual assault cases, and you wanted to redo the tox toxicology, would there be anything you would suggest that they would screen for that would be prevalent? Yes, the drugs that I don't want to talk about on the no, <laughs> okay, <laughs> the drugs we can't talk about because mainly because we don't want to get anybody out there. Um, drugs that they could use this way. Right. If you uh, recall during the Dahmer trial, which occurred in Milwaukee, uh -huh. they both parties stipulated that they would not mention the drug because it was being broadcast. They didn't want that information out there so that somebody could do that. I, and valid. Very valid. Very valid. Yes. But uh, at the same time, if somebody had a question about that specifically, could they contact you, Dr. P? Sure. Yeah. I have a email address, which is E. Edward M. Mary P. Peter O. Oscar S. Sam E. Edward C. Charles Mposec at yahoo.com. Okay. Would you repeat that? Uh, just spell it out. E. M. P. O. S. E. C. at yahoo.com. Okay. And then I have a phone number as well, which is area code 414. 839-6624. Correct. Okay. Very good. That would be that would be great because I'm I'm sure these situations come come up and uh, as defense attorneys and defense investigators, we're kind of at loss of what, you know, how to go forward. Yes. And so you have so much knowledge about this with your combined uh, pharmacology and medical and, and, and investigative knowledge. Um, right. Actually, the, the more you understand neurology and neurophysiology, the rest comes easy. Okay, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you know, uh, let's, let's briefly talk about another article that you wrote, which I think was fascinating that has to do with sexual assault. It's a little... Uh, diverted from the, the drug-induced sexual assault, but you were talking about um, identifying the difference between identifying blood from a broken hymen from menstrual blood. Right. Peripheral and, blood versus menstrually fluent. Okay. Say that again. 
peripheral blood, which is blood that's found out in the system, versus menstrually fluent, which is the the lining of the uterus as it uh, runs out of the the body. And and you say that the um, the difference is um, that you can identify an enzyme. Well, there's enzymes. I mean, the first thing you'd want to do is take and, and do a, a microscopic smear of it. Okay. And with the peripheral blood, which would be you know, due to the ruptured hymen, you would see just blood cells, maybe a few epithelial cells in there, but that'll be about it. Okay. In the menstrual effluent, you're going to have all these pieces of uterine lining, you know, arteries and other cells that come out. So it'd be looking at it on the microscope would be cake. Any any pathologist would spend maybe five seconds looking at it. So it's dramatically different. Oh yes. Well, it's interesting because this question came up recently on one of our private investigator uh, email lists, and uh, uh, somebody somebody answered the question, but but not with the the reasons why it was different. So this is this is interesting. Right. Then there are enzymes in there that prevent the coagulation of the blood because you want to have the uh, the material expelled from the body. So you don't want the clotting to occur at that point during the, the cycle. So you could essentially run a GC for it or one of the other tests for that, looking for that enzyme, which would be missing in the peripheral blood. Okay. Which is the... Uh, hymenal blood. Right, yes. Okay, okay. Another or, fascinating topic. <laughs> yeah. Or some other, some other trauma would, would uh, cause that as well. And the way this relates, we're going to need to take another break, but the way this relates is if you had a victim who was, had a drug-induced sexual encounter and that woman was a virgin, then that could play into that kind of investigation as well. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take another break, Dr. Pete. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. With us is Dr. Praterelli, a forensic consultant. And we were just talking about various different kinds of... Um, sexual assault. So Dr. P with all of your with all of your medical and pharmacology knowledge and investigative knowledge if you were given a sexual assault case today what steps would you take to uh to go forward? You I mean, you already talked about talking to the to the uh person who's accused, the accused person and talked about talking to the victim. What else would you do? What were you, uh, what would be your steps? First of all, I'd make sure I got paid. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that that's a lesson that I learned all too well in that business. Um, Getting your money up front. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that sometimes is a problem. All right. Um, of course, there's always the background check. You know, when I was practicing as an investigator, I was called at my run through the courthouse. You know, the police department, the courthouses were all in the same area. So I just run right through them and do a complete background check, see what I could find, complaints made, all like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then I talk, see if there's any other people out there. And of course, there's always trying to talk to the victims, see what they have to say. On that, you're going to look for prior inconsistent statements. Now, what I would do is I'd certainly ask, you know, what medications have you been taking? Are you taking? And I'd get into, um, do you have any mental disorders? And that's going to be a real tricky question to ask people. Even people right. who are um, trying to think of a polite way to put this, uh, suffering from a mental disorder, who know it, who it's pretty out there. Even if you ask them about it, they get offended. How would you ask? I don't know. Um, I say, you know, do you have any difficulties, uh, emotional, something like that? Mm-hmm. I, I. You know, wouldn't it certainly needs to be asked, but you have to do it in a tactful way. Right, for sure. You don't want to you don't want to turn them off. You don't want to lose the interview. Right. Um, sometimes the medications will tell you what kind of disorder they have if right. they're on medications. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If they're, if they're diagnosed correctly and prescribed correctly. Yeah, that's another problem, isn't it? Right. I mean, it's some of the um, our cohorts in in um, psychiatry are don't have a very good reputation for the accuracy of their diagnosis. And that's a sad commentary, actually. Yeah, a lawyer that I do work for up in Wisconsin in uh, would say you put two psychiatrists in a room, you get three different opinions. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I should watch that because some of my best friends are psychiatrists. <laughs> yeah, but those are the good ones. The ones that your friends are the good ones. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, um, so these cases are always difficult, and they're always so emotionally charged. Yes. Um, very much and all so. everybody is is uh, highly emotional about it. Usually, the family of the victim very much so. They want retribution. Right. 
um, particularly it involves a young person. Yes. Um, so now that you know about the about the drugs, where would you take it from there? If you say you found um, you had some suspicions that one of these drugs were used, where would you take that? From the defense. Mm-hmm, from the defense end, yeah. How do you justify giving that drug to somebody? I mean, you shouldn't have the drug unless you're a professional and this is your patient. Mm-hmm. And in, even then, you should be cautious when you administer it. You know, certainly don't give them something that, to take while they're at the office unless they're being supervised. And then you want somebody with you there as well. You know, count for your time very very accurately and this is where you get into some problems because people tend to overestimate the time that they spend with patients and clients and all like that okay so uh so you mentioned that that uh, the experts on the case in pennsylvania were anesthesiologists are are these drugs um all used in anesthesia no, a lot of them are used for anti-anxiety drugs. Okay. Uh, there are people who are afraid to go to the dentist. I haven't a clue why. And one of the drugs, which you know, I can tell you the name, everybody's heard of it, mm-hmm. uh, is given you know, two, three days before bring down your anxiety level. So you just kind of go in there and flop down on the chair and it works. Okay. You have, a, you have a pretty good ability to, if you take it in the proper dosage, to relate with the external world. So these are, those are essentially drugs that are prescribed by any doctor, any dentist, any psychiatrist. Right. So they're, they're widely available in the medical field. Yes. In the private field, they would... You would either have to get them illegally or use somebody else's prescription. Right. Drug theft. Drug theft, like yeah. Okay. And you'd have to know what the drug does itself. So you have to probably have the ability or to research it or know somebody who's done it in the past. And this is where we get a consultant like you, Dr. P, to, right. to yeah. uh, look at it and see what the, uh, what the scientific part of the drug is. Right. Okay. I mean, you can tell me right now, and I can tell you if the drug would do it or not. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Well, that's that's all good to know. I've, I'm happy to have met you online here and and uh, know that because uh, you know you never know when you're going to run across that. Yeah, uh, I I don't see a whole lot of these cases. Mostly, I'll see it from the aspect where a complainant is taking some sort of drug that may have caused a hallucination. Uh-huh. Or a delusion. Okay. Um, so, the other thing that I th- seems to happen um, between males and females is the misinterpretation of cues. Right. Yes. Where men or males, you know, could be boys, could be teenagers, um, sometimes think no is really yes, <laughs> or are the uh, 
or the, it's unspoken. Maybe it's unspoken. They're thinking that the female wants to have sex, and that's not where the girl's going at all. Right. So, how do, what do you do with that? What do you do with that when you're investigating a case? Uh, see, that would... You'd have to interview both parties and see what happened. And the, Again, the law is very per state. So, you'd have to see how the lack of consent was either implied or stated. Mm-hmm. Um, and how... In... Wisconsin, where I'm most familiar with the law on this, is you have to overcome a force or over, overcome a resistance. So if there was no resistance given, that's your defense. And, and that resistance is also open to interpretation, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and then you've got to throw it to the jury to see what they're going to believe. Yeah. yeah. So it becomes very subjective. You know, this is such a fascinating topic because, uh, you know, I think we're, we've uh, probably most of our listeners have been guilty at one time or another of giving mistaken cues. <laughs> ah. Either, oh, no matter which side you're on, whether you're on the female side or the male side. Um, I, and I think that, uh, as speaking as a female, um, that we do, uh, women do often sexualize conversations that get misinterpreted very well could be you're being very politically correct <laughs> <laughs> yes i am it's, but that's okay it's a very politically charged um, topic and, <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I, I don't want to get in the hot water with anybody on that i, I know i know uh, what, I could, what i can say is this is the way i usually handle these things is uh, I have had the same uh, girlfriend for seven years, so I'm, you know, completely out of the dating situation. Uh, so I don't really understand what goes on there. So. <laughs> That's the easy way out, Doctor right. B. <laughs> and if it gets if it gets really bad, then I say, well, I really don't understand it. And there was this artist, Vincent Van Gogh. We cut off his ear and sent it to the girlfriend and. I don't think that's the right way to do it either. Yeah, so. that's probably not. Yeah, that's probably it doesn't get received very well. <laughs> yeah. So, in in essence, um, I would say my beliefs toward the issue really don't have any bearing on the factual presentation of each case. So each case will be different. Sure. You have to look at the facts therein. Right. Each case, absolutely. Each case is different. And you have to look at each case as different, not ever make the assumption that just because this is a, uh, an accusation of sexual assault, that it's like the last accusation you, you investigated. Uh, And that's, you know, that is, uh, can be a problem for investigators if they have those kind of blinders on. Right. So, um, okay. So is there any other advice you can give us uh, Dr. P, about um, either the drug-induced sexual assault the, um, or any other kind of uh, sexual assault that you've been exposed to? Well, for the drug-induced, uh, drug-facilitated sexual assault, um, question the victim, find out what drugs are, are being used. Then an excellent resource to look for these drugs is pubmed.com, P-U-B-M-E-D.com. And that's run by the National Institute of Health. So you're going to have 
every major work that's published on that website so you can see what the current research is saying. And if it is a drug that, you know, of course, if you're giving, I don't know, what do I got here? Amoxicillin. If you're giving amoxicillin, you're uh, not going to uh, generate hallucinations, whereas you're giving some of the drugs that we don't want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. You'll see it on PubMed, and we'll talk about it. Okay. Oh, that's really good advice. Yeah. And, and anything else? Yeah, I used to have to spend days and days in the library, you know, looking up stuff and going and finding a study and ordering this study and that study. And now that you have the internet search engines with PubMed, I can do research on an article or research in a case in two, three hours. Yeah, have everything I need. Exactly. Well, that's a that's a great site. Thank you so much for sharing that because uh, I can see that that could be beneficial in a lot of areas. Right. Uh, for investigation. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating, Dr. Uh, Dr. P. Thank you for so much for sharing this hour with, you, with us. Uh, I think, uh, at least for me, it's helped open my eyes and, to some things that I hadn't thought about, and I hope if there's investigators out there that they may have the same reaction, um, both on, you know, when we're talking about the different types of blood as well as the uh, drug and uh, drug-facilitated sexual assaults. Yeah, that's why I continue to write for PI Magazine. It's I'll run into a case, and I go, oh, the investigators would like to know about this. Yes, absolutely. And, of course, thank you for mentioning PI Magazine because that's one of our my great sponsors of the show. Uh, Jimmy Messis and uh, Rosemary Messis own PI Magazine. And if anybody's interested in getting that magazine, it's www.pimagazine.com. Um, my other sponsor is, I should mention too, as long as we're talking about sponsors, is IRB Search, a proprietary data provider for legal professionals, and they can be reached at irbsearch.com. So again, thank you so much, Dr. P. Uh, this has been very enlightening. Um, I appreciate you taking the hour out of your day-to-day -to, -day to, to talk to us about it. Anytime. So, listeners, if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact my wonderful producer of this show, Sandra Rogers, at Sandra, S-A-N-D-R-A dot R-O-G-E-R-S at voiceamerica.com. So, thank you again, listeners. Thank you again, Dr. P. And tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Mm -hmm.